Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buetes. And I'm Jacob Schechtman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Today we are talking to Ava Sustain's founder, Nicolene Burgermann from Copenhagen. The first time it really struck me as to the impact that was being made to the environment and the waste that was being created in the lab setup was during the drought in 2017 in the Western Cape, South Africa. While I was simply focusing very hard on getting my work done on time, my colleagues actually made me aware of these issues. I have to give a quick acknowledgement to Monica Clements, Jonathan Hay and Anton Hamann, who were PhD students in the Department of Chemistry and Polymer Science at the time. They designed what they called a closed cold water recycling system. This made use of a cooler box, a garden hose, a laboratory silicon tubing and a small garden fountain pump. Ice and a small amount of water is placed into the cooler box, which is then fed through a condenser uh, for rotary evaporators or distillation by the pump. They managed to save roughly 3,000 litres of water per week that way. But of course, old habits die hard and once you move to a new lab, there are new protocols and ways of doing things, which is not always orientated towards sustainability. I was so glad to find Ava Sustain via blog. I read on the website www.labconscious.com. Written by the founder of this consultancy, Nicolene Burgermann, who is based in Copenhagen, Denmark. She has a PhD in health and medical sciences from the University of Copenhagen and have worked in wet labs for more than seven years in Germany and Denmark. Thank you for agreeing to share your work and everything on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for inviting me. First things first, I just want to hear how's it going with you <laughs> before we jump into this. Just like how how is COVID, the pandemic, how is everything treating you there? Yeah, well, oh, that's a that's a good large question with a lot of answers, <laughs> right? I think generally... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that changed everything, right, of course. So uh, life is a little more difficult this year than other years. But uh, but me and my family and friends are all very fortunate. Uh, no one no one was ill and no oh, one lost great. their jobs. And I mean, I think Denmark is also, I mean, we have a welfare system that really tries to catch the unfortunate. So in that way, the worst thing that can happen in Denmark isn't as bad as in many, many other places in the world. Uh, so we're just extremely lucky to be here and not born uh, in another country. So well, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah luckily, um, well, I thought like COVID-19 was far away from me. Like um, you just hear from people that you don't know that, you know, they've been infected. But now it's coming a little bit closer to home. So it's, it's getting a yeah. little scarier. <laughs> So, but that just keeps you on your on your toes. So you just try yeah. to stay as vigilant as True. possible, and you know wear that mask <laughs> and all that yeah. things. And you are back to work, back in the lab, or is everything still kind of locked down? Yeah, so I actually don't work in labs anymore. So oh. I'm not uh, actually. I had my last day uh, at uh, where I did my postdoc uh, two weeks before Denmark was completely shut down. Um, okay. So I managed to finish off before pandemic went uh, pandemic, so to say, and uh, 
Yeah, and then for a long time, the scientists were not allowed at all in the labs, uh, only yes. if they were working directly with uh, the coronavirus. Um, yeah, essential, yes. Exactly, yeah. Um, we did the same And then well. with time, more people were allowed, and now, at least in my previous center, everybody is allowed, the people who need to be in the lab, but you wear a mask at all times, and you're not allowed to mm. be... You know, you have to be distanced and people are spread out in all kinds of weird rooms now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when yeah. I walk into a grocery shop, I'm just like holding my hand out. Like, yep, spray me. <laughs> yeah. It's just like yeah. the normal thing now. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, when you watch uh, movies or you see something that was recorded before 2020, like, it looks so weird. They're so close. And yeah. <laughs> But yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, let's just start from the beginning here. Just for interest's sake, what was your studies about in the uh, during your PhD? Um, I worked in a DNA damage lab, so to say, or more like a ubiquitin signaling in DNA damage lab. Um, so it's a functional protein science uh, where we did a lot of uh, in vitro cell culture based experiments, uh, trying to find out first of all how do how how does a cell recognize it. DNA damage and how is it repaired, but also um, how do different chemotherapeutics uh, induce DNA damages and uh, how can we how can we maybe in the future distinguish between patients that would benefit from a certain type of chemo and patients who basically only get the side effects. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Sounds interesting. So I'm from a bioscience lab. Yes. Um, were you always going in that direction? Or how did you end up deciding on that PhD topic? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when I when I look back, I mean, I never had a plan. I never knew where I was going. I only knew not even the next step, but sort of when I was in front of a decision, I had to make a decision, right? Um, and I always really uh, envied somehow the people who knew where they were going and knew what they were passionate about. And I never really knew. I just knew I liked chemistry and biology. And that's why I decided to to study biochemistry. Like start also because from I had exactly, and I was okay. <laughs> biochemistry is pretty broad. Uh, I I felt like I'm not closing any doors. Uh, that's going into a, a wide area that I think I will like. And then during my studies, it was just uh, somehow it was at least in those years very uh, like it was a hot topic to do something that was related to protein science and human health. That was sort of like. Yeah, I don't know. Somehow that was just uh, the cool thing to do, and I, in a way, it also makes sense, right? Because it's that can have a really, really high impact uh, in the world. Then I went for that, and then yeah, that one thing led to the other, and uh, yeah. And that's where you found your passion and something that you were interested in. I, I think I realized that I wasn't so passionate about it. I mean, I always liked it, and I loved working in a lab. I I loved the. I mean, I think the University of Copenhagen is a wonderful place, and I had great colleagues and a nice boss. And I like I I like a lot of stuff about research and laboratory work. But uh, but I I realized that I was more passionate about environmental stuff and climate stuff than the. Uh, than science in human health so um. it's actually amazing how you grow into something like you, you you kind of like you said you don't know but you kind of just you you trust that gut and you follow that little string and then mm. when you get to the thing you're actually like, oh this is what i want to do of course exactly. but kind of everything you've done up until then still helped you to get there definitely and i think i'm 
I mean, I'm, I, there are no regrets. I mean, today, if I would start studying, I would study something else, but, but I don't regret it because it was the right decision at that time. That was what I was interested in, right? Um, but I just remember yes. that I had study buddies who actually knew why they were studying biochemistry. <laughs> they were like, oh, I do this because I really like neuroscience and I want to look into, like, how can we cure Alzheimer's in the future? And I was like, I yes. don't know. I just know I like the topic. I have no idea what I'm going to use it for. Um, yeah, I was yeah. like that. I started out with sports science because once again, the same as you, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just know I liked sport and I liked science. Mm. So <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. very imaginative of me. <laughs> but then yeah. that was the best first year. I really, really enjoyed it because you were active. You did rugby, you did soccer, you did gymnastics. And then nice. you did a little bit of chemistry, maths, you know. So it was just an all-round very nice experience. But the thing is, I realized my friends around me were like, yes, I want to be a springbok, uh, South African springbok coach. And I wanted to be a biokineticist. And I was like, I don't know. I don't really think I want to do any of that. So I ended up enjoying chemistry far too much, more than they did. So I, I decided to go more into that direction. So And then I yeah. only like in your, your final year of studying, I found polymer science. So that was also like, oh, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Finally, <laughs> something I'm passionate about. I mean, when you open one door, then you'll see that now there are five other doors you could open, right? And and you can't say from the beginning what's the what's what's the final door I'm gonna pick. Like, where am I gonna end? I mean, maybe some people do know, but I think most of us don't know. We just have to mm -hmm. look at what's immediately in front of us. Like, what what do I like to do now? That is like, what's my interest true. right now? And then, I mean, things. You know, probably you and I will be doing completely different things in five or ten years, right? Because that that's what the, the the labor market looks like these days people people change and use their skills yeah. in new areas and, and stuff job opportunities change like exactly i didn't even know about podcasting until uh, a year ago <laughs> so you know yeah. so that's very interesting how everything you can never really plan it out but you can just try and stay true to what you are passionate about and you know go from exactly. there so how was this initiative of starting a consultancy uh, started? How did you begin Ava Sustain? Yeah, that's also a good question. And somehow I want to say it was super random. Uh, but of course it wasn't <laughs> random in the sense that I woke up one day and just did it. I think a lot of different um, like jigsaw puzzle pieces came together suddenly. Um, because I had realized that, I mean, with time in my previous lab where I did my PhD and a short postdoc, I mean, with time, I grew more interested in how we were doing the research and how we could do it in a greener way. Then, then, I mean, it was simply that interest was bigger than my interest in the actual science. And I thought, okay, I, th I think that's a big fat sign that I, I have to sort of pursue this passion. Mm. Um, so I started a green initiative at the center, this uh, green task force, uh, where people from different floors, different groups, uh, sort of tried to promote sustainability in, in the Institute. Um, and we just started small because, you know, change is difficult. Uh, you don't, you don't make a sensor green overnight. So we just tried to sort of promote the conversations about sustainability and tr change small things. Um, I and have then because, so many questions yeah. about how you persevered and like try to get an entire team to comply with your um, requests. Yeah, I mean, and I think I could talk for hours about that, but I think what was really nice about this group was that it was super 
super anarchistic in a way. I didn't come as a boss and decided what should we do. Everybody came and if they had ideas for initiatives that they liked, then they should just go do it. Um, because there are so many things like at work where you have these obligatory meetings and you have to do all these things and someone tells you <laughs> what to do. And it's so nice when you're passionate about something like going green, which everybody in the group were, that you also have some freedom to do what you what you want to do and you can do it in your way and then we help each other and we like bounce ideas but but the overall thing was sort of we want to promote sustainability in in all ways in the sense a little by little and then i think when i started working with it i was like oh this is actually it's more fun than i thought and then on the side i was doing some volunteer work with a green ngo and through that i just met many people who didn't like, they didn't represent the normal career that I... I mean, mm. you know what I thought was a normal career because what I've been exposed to for literally the last 10 years was when you study biochemistry and you do a PhD in this, then either you become a researcher yeah. in academia or you become a researcher <laughs> in the industry. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was the only options, right? I mean, I like research. That's not it. But I was also like, I just don't see myself fitting in yeah, any of those categories. I, I totally understand what you um, feel. And then I, I met these people. Yeah, exactly right. And and for, for a lot of people, that's perfect. Maybe they want to be there and that's great. Uh, I, I just couldn't see myself in those those jobs. Um, but then I met these people who were working with sustainability and didn't, they hadn't taken, you know, uh, what is it called? The path. Oh, the yeah. Path it's like the, or whatever. the they, they took a less trodden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they had they had gone their own ways in, in different ways. So had started you know, uh, either as uh, freelancers or they had uh, started startup companies or whatever. And I think I was just inspired because suddenly I was like, oh, wait, okay, there are more than two options for me oh, in the yeah. world. That's wonderful um, when the world then, opens up like that. Exactly. I was like, whoa, suddenly I see, I mean, I have a lot of skills, of course, from my PhD and my postdoc and life in general that I can use well, that, outside that, I think research. that gives hope to a lot of other students or researchers out there who's like, Oh, the next step is to become either a lecturer or you know, like exactly. go work in an industry. <laughs> and I was yeah, always like... looking for those stories. I was like, please show me someone who didn't do one of those two things. Um, and of course, they're also a little... I mean, they're there, but they are few. So mm. you don't get exposed to them the same way as the, the more standard career, so to say. Um, and I think that's also just a really important message from me that I never had a plan. I just did what I liked doing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, now I see an opportunity that I like and that I think I will take. Mm. Um, and then I thought, yeah. okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? Uh, either I can't live from it uh, because I do have a rent and I need to eat something, right? So either I can't <laughs> live from it and that would be sad or I don't, I'll end up not finding it as fun as I thought. Um, and then, okay, if one of those two things happened, then I will start applying for jobs, right? Mm. And I was like, okay, if that's the worst thing that can happen, I mean, yeah. then there's no reason not to try it. Um, that's true. Like weighing the risks and, yeah. Yeah. The and I mean, also, the other. exactly. And I mean, if I wouldn't take this chance, then I would anyway be applying for jobs, right? So it's not like, exactly. I mean, it's the same. It's just a different order or time frame somehow yeah and that is true like sometimes you have to first just try what you want and if it doesn't work you have a backup like always plan for the worst and then you can go forward without even thinking about it because yeah like also because set. exactly and i think sometimes 
you know, if you actually take a look at what's the worst thing that can happen, then maybe it isn't that bad. I'm also again, I'm very fortunate to be in a in a in a country in a society where I will be. I mean, I will receive unemployment money if I'm unemployed, right? So I know I won't be living on the street if if this doesn't work out. I mean, then mm-hmm. I'll have the unemployment money for a while until I get a job. So, oh, I mean, the wonderful. worst thing that can happen is really, it really isn't that bad in this case. And I think sometimes when you don't look at it straight, you have this idea that, oh my God, what if it doesn't work out? And it's like, yeah, yeah what if it doesn't work out? Tell me about it. What, what does that look like? And then maybe you realize, okay, I can live with that. Yeah, because that, that type of, like, if you don't speak to yourself like that, you kind of just... Uh, you, you become too afraid to even try and that's exactly. the worst kind of failure I think if you don't even try then mm. you know that's instant failure yeah and also when when fear controls you right then there are so many mm-hmm. great things that you don't get to see and do uh, of course it's easy to say and more difficult to do but it, I think it's a good Very exercise true. to ask yourself what is actually the worst thing that can happen uh, that mm. is that is real talk that like really I appreciate that you say that I have uh, a lot of that discussions with uh, people around me where we constantly are surrounded with the word anxiety and then um, yeah. it's actually just something that controls you but you can control it right back <laughs> you just mm. need to tell yourself that so that's very true it's hard work but you can do it yeah um just out of curiosity how did the name Ava Sustain come about yeah Oof, also a good question um <laughs> i thought um, I wanted to include the word sustain somehow. So when you see the company name, you would have this immediate idea that it deals with sustainability in some form. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, I want to pick another word that can be combined with sustain and which has a nice meaning that I feel like it's representative of why I'm doing this. Uh, and Ava is, I mean, it's basically the same meaning as Eve, you know, Adam and Eve in the oh, garden, okay. right? So it means life... Um, and I think, uh, I mean, sustainability is a prerequisite for for life. I mean, you can't keep living without going sustainable because we are basically destroying our own habitat at the moment, right? Yes, nothing is unlimited. Exactly. I mean, um, yeah, and then also sustainability has to be sort of become part of our life. It has to be something that we consider and it's sort of, yeah, just yes, part we of have our to lives. Stop, we have to stop uh, associating sustainability with um, inconvenience. Because <laughs> exactly. it's going to be very inconvenient when the world ends in a few years. Exactly. And nothing left. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be more inconvenient than going green, that's for sure. So, so I thought this is, like, it says something about sustainability, but it also puts, like, a very heartfelt meaning into it. Um, I, yeah, mm. something that I think is, like, I like cool. It. Also because, I mean, I'm, I'm value-driven, right? I'm doing this because I want to make a difference. Uh, it's not because I want to become a super, super wealthy know. consultant. I'm more like, <laughs> I want to I wanna be able to pay my rent and make a positive green difference. And I think the whole life is sort of maybe, yeah, showing that. Not that people know it, but I know it. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. No, like, this is the, this is the best type of... Um, business i feel because it's definitely giving back it's not just taking i heard a really nice uh, yeah quote the other day good companies make good money and great com- companies make a difference and oh, i thought that's oh, just a really nice line i love it yeah. 
Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the reality around the amount of waste that's being created? Do you have any statistics about that or, um, you know, about the waste that's in the lab environment and the issues yeah. around the efficient recycling and the reusability of single-use plastics? Um, because I know yeah. a lot of people have like a, a misinformed idea of where their plastics that they are so nicely organizing in the lab goes to mm. actually and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. Uh, I mean, I think the whole plastic story, I think we most of us are very much aware of the world's plastic problem, but not very many of us are aware of how to deal with it. Um, so, of course, when we look at the waste in a lab, there are many different fractions, right? There's the chemical waste, liquid waste, and then there's the solid waste. And solid waste is also different fractions, but but the thing that really... Like the thing that people really notice and have a problem with is the plastic waste, of course, because we're using so many disposables mm. and single-use plastic stuff. And I mean, it's not that we have accurate numbers, but um, but a few scientists did this uh, estimation back in 2015. I mean, they basically measured how much plastic they were producing in their lab, and then they did some uh, yeah rough calculations to sort of see, okay, so how many academic research labs do we have in the world, and what does that add up to? And they were estimated that it's more than 5 million tons of plastic waste that academic research labs produce. And that's actually 2% of the total plastic waste in the world. And it's not like science, uh, like that 2% of si people in the world are scientists, right? So, Ugh, so it's bad. very, <laughs> we're, we're producing a lot of plastic waste. Um, and of course, I mean, maybe we have good reasons to do it. I mean, we want to ensure sterility and we want to save time from handling glassware. And those reasons may be fair enough, um, but that doesn't really solve the plastic waste problem. We still have a plastic waste problem. Yes. Um, and many Ugh. people want to do something, right? So they, they, what they see in the lab, they don't see the consumption of energy or water, right? Uh, that's very somehow... Yeah, that kind yeah, it's of just hides not, away. Mm. Exactly, but the plastic is so obvious to us. So that's what a lot of scientists want to do something about. That's also how I got interested in the first place. Um, and then the problem is that what we do is that we start sorting our plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's how we feel like we're making a difference so we sort it maybe we do it in hard and soft maybe we do it in more fractions or whatever but in the end that's really a, that's not going to make a huge difference um, because first Why of all is that? yeah I mean there are unfortunately many reasons for that I think it's I mean the plastic the plastic waste problem really needs many different kinds of solutions to uh, um, yeah to not be a huge problem anymore so first of all most of the plastic isn't recyclable in the first place. Um, either it gets contaminated in the lab, and that's why it must be incinerated, so burnt, or it consists of a, diff uh, yeah, a mix of different plastic types, and that's why it also cannot be recycled, right? Um, so most plastic isn't recyclable in the first place. Um, then, secondly, it's really difficult to sort plastic correctly. Um, I mean, in Denmark, we're used to distinguishing between soft and hard plastic, and that's very arbitrary because there, are, I mean, there are more than a handful of different plastic types, and yes. unless unless there's a pictogram on the plastic item in your hand, you have almost zero idea of getting it right. It's super difficult to tell them apart. So, so the sorting itself is almost impossible, right? Because most plastic objects don't have this pictogram. Yes, and then and many finally, people don't have the information. Like this might be soft to me, but hard to you. Like yeah, and I mean, 
there's so much that I would I would be a hundred percent sure that this must be soft plastic because you know it's soft it doesn't make noises when I do anything with it and then it turns out it's actually hard plastic it's it's super difficult um, but then even if we sort it correctly Otsa um, is not going to be recycled because mm-hmm. most of the recyclable sorted plastic ends up in storage facilities plastic storage facilities in plastic landfills it ends up in the environment or it becomes incinerated so burned. And then a small fraction is downcycled, and that means it becomes plastic products of uh, a substantially lower quality. And then an even smaller fraction, even smaller fraction, is actually or truly efficiently recycled. Wow. Um, so it's like even even if everything was recyclable in the lab, even if we managed to sort everything correctly, odds are it's just gonna end up somewhere. It's not gonna be recycled. So if you wanna do something about the plastic waste. Don't focus on how it's exiting your lab, but try to reduce how much plastic is entering your lab in the first place. That's where yeah, the real impact true. is. Mm. That is the best advice, I think. And it goes in the lab and outside the lab. I mean, generally, it's like recycling is not going to fix it for us. Really, it isn't. And if you would, the, the time that you invest in sorting plastic and emptying the bins in the right yards and blah, 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 if you would spend that time on something else, you would get much more green impact out of it. Yeah. yeah, it's sad, but it's true. This is not just applicable for any lab environment. You're, you're right, it's like for any office environment, home environment, exactly. uh, even the, the businesses and the grocery stores and all that. Like, exactly. if you can just find a way of reusing gla- like glassware or mm-hmm. paper bags or things like that. But yeah, And also putting pressure on suppliers because... Mm. I mean, I'm, we will also probably be talking about that later, right? What specifically yes. can you do? But there are many companies who are trying to do something about, for example, the plastic content in their products or who are trying to substitute things, right? So we also have to remember that, I mean, we are the customers. And if we, if if the suppliers and if the manufacturers are seeing that there's a market for something, then they're going to produce that. So we yeah. have to make them aware that we are interested in buying those green products. That is true. We have the power. We just need to like make sure that they like we we support the right people. I mean, they they are producing what we are buying, right? I mean, we are controlling exactly. the market in that way. If we keep buying those things, if we don't ask them, hey, do you have anything in the pipeline that is more green? Then why would they put anything in the they pipeline won't. that is they more won't green? Bother. No, of course not. I mean, that's our responsibility. I actually bought a. Uh, bedding and it had didn't have any plastic around it so it was like the Mm. first of its kind in our shops we didn't really we're not so progressive but finally so that was very cool I didn't really um, Mm. even look for it because I'm just so used to everything being wrapped in plastic and sometimes you just you have to take that one because that's the only that's that's all you see Um, so that was really interesting to just uh, find bedding you know that's um uh, completely exposed <laughs> and not wrapped in yeah. plastic so it was actually so it was very um beneficial to them as well because i could feel the material and it was soft and i i was immediately um enticed to buy it because it it i couldn't feel the other materials i could no. compare and this one felt amazingly fluffy and i was like yep i'll take you Good point. so that was yeah. beneficial in both ways no plastic yeah. and i wanted <laughs> to buy their product because i felt it nice <laughs> very yeah. interesting but uh, um, so just getting back to the lab uh, waste, what are the big culprits in the lab when it comes to energy um, or water waste? So, so the, main, the main culprits that people should focus on? 
yeah, I think it's it's really nice that you address this as well because I think the waste is the obvious thing that we want to do something about, but we don't really many of us we're not even aware of how much energy goes into a lab, right, or how much water is mm. being used. Um, so I mean the top the top two things that are really eating energy in a lab is cold storage and ventilation. Um, and I mean laboratories are really extremely energy intensive. I mean we we don't see the numbers, we don't see the consumption we probably also don't pay the energy bill right that's the university or whatever mm -hmm. that does that but but there's there's no industrial space using more energy per square meter than laboratories apart from data centers and that says a lot right mm -hmm. um so cold storage everything that we store at not room temperature but colder that's a that's a really really big uh, consumer and also uh, i mean we have a lot of ventilation probably we don't think about it right it's not only the fume hoods, fume hoods and the lav benches. It's also general air condition and biosafety cabinets. And it's a lot of ventilation that we have to keep us safe. Yeah, our lab has uh, two aircons because we need to take care of the instruments. They need to be at a certain temperature. And exactly, stuff, so. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then if you work with GMO, whatever, something, and I mean, there, there's a lot of ventilation going into that. And which is, of course, also needed. It's not that we should, yeah yeah skip that because that's a matter of safety what would you suggest uh, for people in the lab that they should do to lower the impact of this water or energy waste um yeah and so we can start with the water because that's sort of a short list actually um i mean it's it's definitely to consider your autoclaving habits uh, because autoclaving is spending like it's consuming a lot of energy and water at the same time so first of all just like, think about if it really needs to be sterile. Like, if it doesn't have to be sterile, don't autoclave it. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, never run the autoclave unless it's full, because it uses the same amount of energy and water regardless of how much you put into it. Um, and if you if your lab alone isn't able to fill up your autoclave within a meaningful period of time, then maybe you can share it with other labs. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And you can also possibly uh, put uh, water-saving devices on your autoclave. Uh, to reduce water I and then I mean, yeah and the second water tip is is to think about what kind of water you need because i think many of us have this you know oh we better safe than sorry so we'll just go for ultra pure water in any oh. in any experiment mm. right but and i used to think that you know one liter of tap water comes into this purification system machine thing and one liter of pure water comes out, but that's not the case at all. So some of these ultra-pure uh, water purification systems, they actually send 80% of the input water directly down the drain. So when you take a two-liter two blue cap bottle and fill, fill it up with, with the purest water, you just pour it out eight liters of water. Um, oh, wow. So there's a lot of wastewater from that. Um, so if you don't need the ultra-pure water, don't use it because it's you're pouring a lot of water in the sink. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then for the for the energy stuff, I mean, I mean the list is long. There's so many things you can do, of course, but but there's some really high impact stuff you can do quite easily. Um so for cold storage, for example, one thing you can do is to check the temperature of your minus 20 freezers. Um because if your freezer is colder than minus 20, it's using more energy. So mm. if it's a typically a typical freezer, if it's twenty four, like minus twenty four degrees, it's using twenty percent more energy, 
And if it's minus 28, it's using 50% more energy. So a simple thing like just checking that the temperature freezer is what you asked it to be. Um, and unfortunately, many freezers today, they don't even show the actual temperature. They show the set temperature, which is insane, right? Um, yeah. So you might have to use a portable thermometer to, to check it. Uh, yeah. But that's a way to quickly save save energy, right? Yeah, but I think and then, that's not even yeah. that's things that people don't even think about. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so it's so, exactly. It's, it's so simple, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, like, and then for the yeah. No, like uh, I just I'm thinking of the, the how many times you kind of just leave the freezer door open for a while because you're putting things in or taking things out, and you're like just letting it yeah. be there for a little. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's also something that, I mean, there's so many things that we're not aware of, right? Because mm-hmm. also we're, I mean, things are constantly running in our, like between our ears, we're doing experiments, exactly. maybe we're doing too many things in parallel, and we also want to think big thoughts and stuff, so we don't really, we maybe we're not so anchored in what we're physically doing always, mm-hmm. right? But But every time you open a door to a freezer or a fridge, the temperature will increase, And that means that the freezer or the fridge will spend energy on cooling down again. I mean, Mm. that's that's how it works, right? So the longer you keep the doors open and the more you open stuff, the more energy will be consumed. And that's also why it makes sense to keep order in your freezers, right? Keep inventories so you know exactly where to find stuff. Because if you need five minutes to find stuff every time you open the freezer door, first of all, it's really annoying. But secondly, (laughs) it's also not great for your energy consumption, right? So that's also an example of like a a green area where you can actually save time in the end, right? And you can also save money because sometimes you lose samples because you don't know where they went. Mm, Yeah, that's true. So then you kind of, you think that it's done, it's finished, you need to order more or it kind of just goes, expires there in the back of the fridge. (laughs) I mean, sometimes you have to redo the same samples, right? Because it's like, okay, I knew I had, I mean, I had eight different tubes. Now I only can find seven. So I have to redo the whole experiment. But it could also be like what you're mentioning, that you have whatever regent that suddenly is missing and then you buy another one and then you find it after it expires. And that's just a waste of resources, including money. Yeah, and the time that you looked for it, and maybe you have to wait for it to arrive again, and I don't get me started. That's really annoying, right? Um, True. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, there are many, many things you can do. But I think, for example, inventories in general are really, they are hassle to make, but they are so nice to have because it makes it so much easier yeah. to work in the lab. Now that is key. I think if you're in a lab with more than two people, you need to have an inventory. You need to have an organized system. It's yeah. not going to work with so many people in and out with uh, reagents go- coming and going and so on. No exactly. way. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to use my lab, uh, the electron microscopy lab, as an example. So our sa- sample prep that we have going on in our lab uh, uses a lot of plastic pipettes and especially petri dishes as well. Uh, we work with biological samples and various types of samples, actually. So it's like geological, biological, um, polymer. So we kind of just use various types of um, fixation methods and so on. So the stuff that we use is kind of dangerous. Um, it's like urinal acetate and osmium tetroxide. So we don't really uh, feel safe reusing those plasticware afterwards. So then would you suggest that these types of materials, is there a way of uh, like making them reusable or would they just be incinerated basically afterwards? 
Um, yeah, incineration is is for the is primarily for medical waste, right? It's the it's the biohazard stuff, and um, and if it's more like chemical waste, I mean, in that case, if you would reuse something, you would have to rinse it, and then the rinsing water, whatever, would also have to be disposed of as chemical waste, right? So I think that's that's something that, I mean, I think every institute has this uh, environmental health and safety officer who knows how to deal with chemical waste. And I think that's that's a really important thing to make sure you know what you're doing because that's, of course, a matter of safety, right? But I think in general, there, there are many things you can do in this sort of setting to reduce the plastic waste. Um, like, for example, if if you can reuse the same dish immediately where you don't have to rinse it and keep it and store it somehow, mm-hmm. if you can reuse things immediately or if you have if you have a pipette that you're using for the same buffer, then... Like if you use the same buffer five times, then use the same serological pipette for that, right? So once again, it basically just comes to being organized and planning ahead. So if you're like using the one pipette for osmium tetroxide and you throw it away, you're like, oh, but the next yeah. step also needs. Yeah. So yeah. it would be silly then to just take another pipette for the same thing. Exactly. True. And I think with time, that also becomes a habit where you don't have to sit and consider and plan a, like ahead, but it's sort of like you, if you already know what experiment you're doing and you've done it before, then you also know where and which mm. pipettes you want to keep and reuse. Yes. And then something like also just consider the size, like what size of Petri dish do you actually need? Like how much material do you need? That's both good in terms of reducing how much plastic you're using, but also regions, Right. I mean, sometimes we feel like it's very convenient to have a 10 centimeter dish in my hand because that's the size that fits my hand. But maybe that's not the right argument, right? I mean, if, if I anyway don't need a lot of material to answer the, the scientific question, then maybe I should simply reduce and be a minimalist. Um, I mean, we can really, really save a lot of resources that way, including money, right? Which is in most people's interest. Um, so consider the size when you when you sit and do those experiments. And then, of course, again... See if you can purchase products with reduced plastic content. Like either because, for example, you can get piper tips that have 40% less plastic in them because they're thinner. Or you can get serological pipettes that are wrapped in bulk instead of individually wrapped, right? I mean, that all yeah. adds up because we're using so much of this. So even even those reductions will make a difference in the end. Yeah, and like there is things like glass um, petri dishes and so on, so that is more washable at the end. So we can definitely move more towards that uh, direction. Yeah, but I have to say I think the the glass plastic is a difficult one because oh. it's not like glass is a is a green product uh, per se. Um, I mean, glass takes a lot of energy to produce, and it takes more. I mean, it's heavier to ship, so the shipping emissions are higher. Um, you typically you wash them and you autoclave it and that also adds to the footprint of the glassware and then if you break it too early or prematurely in a way right then it Mm -hmm. might not even be worth it because you have to reuse glass many times to make it worthwhile and glass also I mean in principle it's recyclable right but you know laboratory glassware can take really high temperatures so that means you also need really high temperatures to melt it so either it gets down or it becomes downcycled or it ends up in landfill. So it's it's not to say that that don't substitute for glass, but it's more like if you want to get the most out of your green lab efforts uh, with the least effort somehow, then maybe mm. substituting plastic for glass isn't the way to go because you will have to handle a lot of glassware, right? Which is annoying to a lot of people. 
you know, I think we all have this we have this gut feeling that glass must be better than plastic, right? And I think, mm. for example, if all energy was green, right? Like if the production of glass was green, if the shipping of the glass was green, if autoclaving was green, I mean, in the sense that the energy was renewable, then yes. the things would also look different, of course, right? But but that's just not the case today. So there is a lot of carbon emissions coming out from the whole like life cycle of glass um, as well. So it's, I mean, do it if it makes sense. If it feels like this is an easy thing to do in your lab for whatever uh, object to substitute it for glass, then do it. But if it's a lot of effort, then maybe don't do it because the impact might not be as high as it could be. Mm. Okay, yeah. wow. Well, that's something new I just learned. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am, I'm sure many people are worried about uh, time efficiency. Like we've mentioned time efficiency mm. a little bit now a few times. Um, but there's still people that will be a little bit um, uh, stubborn to the idea of uh, doing all these things that we are mentioning now, like becoming more greener and uh, being more aware and you know taking time to organize things. And mm. how, how do you? Maybe you came across people like this during your time starting up. Definitely. <laughs> okay, I'm glad because I am just imagining me trying to talk to people yeah. uh, who has been stuck in their ways and doing things like they've yeah. been doing it for 20 years. Now I'm coming mm. here and trying to be all hippie in their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, how do you handle someone? Or how would you suggest to someone? What would you say to them? Um, I think this is really a topic we could talk about forever because I think the people component of going green is really underestimated. I mean, there are so many things that are in principle so simple. I mean, it's not rocket science to go green in the lab. It really isn't. But getting people on board and making them feel like this makes sense and it's not stealing too much time from my research, that's that's where the real obstacle is. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, I think there are some... I mean, I, th I, have a, I have a lot of stuff to say about that, right? I think it's important to remember that there are many good arguments for going green. It doesn't have to be inconvenient. It doesn't have to take a lot of time or money. There are simple things you can do that has a high green impact. Um, yes. And so, for example, like checking the freezer temperatures of your minus 20 freezers. You can also actually chill up your minus 80 freezers to minus 70 because it's using a lot of energy it's like it's equivalent to an entire household one minus 80 freezer wow. um and there's no scientific evidence that minus 80 is better than minus 70 it's basically just because freezer technology yeah has become better um so those are simple things that don't have to take a lot of time also shutting the sash of the fume hood right i mean one open fume hood is like three to four households i mean it's using so much energy uh, so just shutting it really makes a difference. And that doesn't have to take a lot of time. That's just remember to do it well when you walk away, right? Yeah. There's a lot of students I know of during my time, even I think I was also one of them that didn't even realize that you left a few mood on and it's like exactly. on overnight, you know? And I think that's, I mean, awareness precedes change. And I think there are so many things that we're not even aware of. Like I, I didn't know two years ago, that a fume hood is consuming as much energy as three to four households. I mean, if I had known that, then I'm pretty sure I would have been more, like, aware of, of shutting it, right? So we also need to, totally. <laughs> to to be aware of what is actually the footprint. And, and do you know that a, that a minus 80 freezer is the same as one household, for example, right? Those things. That's so I think, first yeah. of all, 
I mean, we also have to accept that going green really isn't an overnight thing. It's like it's a long process and people are not going to jump on it like it's gold and start doing things. I mean, mm. it's going to come slowly, but I think it's rem- I mean, remember that there are many good arguments. It's not just about the planet and the environment. You can also take the actions that save you time or save you money, like making the inventories. And maybe if you have a student assistant or a, a technician who's willing to do it, maybe that could be a way to do it. Maybe you can make rotation schemes for like whatever, you know, if you have different freezers, maybe different people organize different freezers or whatever. So you distribute yeah, it evenly like and you will all, you will all benefit from having the inventories, right? Because it's super annoying when you're looking for something and you can't find it and you end up going to different offices and you ask about it and you look again and you open and you close it and you open and you close it and <laughs> I, you go crazy, right? So, so that could be an argument for like, if people don't care so much about the planet, maybe, maybe they would see the convenience of doing inventories. Yes, um, that is actually very, very good argument. Like uh, turning that word inconvenience onto them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe make it convenient, actually. And also, for example, yeah. if you make a, if you make good habits in the lab of turning off equipment that isn't in use, I mean, you, some labs have reported to save up to fifty percent of their energy consumption simply by turning off things they don't use. I'm pretty which is sure you also crazy. save the instrument from you know, so you're sparing that instrument. Exactly. I'm sure. Because the lifetime of the of the instruments and the equipment will be longer and it mm. needs less repair generally. So that means, again, you're saving time and money because every time you're waiting for whatever repair guy to come and take a look at it and then he's ordering oh, whatever parts and then yeah. he comes back and he realizes he can't fix it anyway and you end up buying a new <laughs> piece of whatever, right? I mean, that takes a lot of time from researchers and that's very frustrating and it's also a waste of money. And, I mean, you can really... In terms of equipment, you can also really make a difference by making good habits of turning things off. Mm. Um, and for example, like specifically, how would you make your lab do that? Because that's the next question, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I can recommend that you that you at a lab meeting go through the appliances that you have. And then you make common agreements. So let's say this whatever centrifuge, which is at four degrees. What What's the rule here? Is it turn it off after use? Is it ask before turning it off? Is it never turn off or turn off if you're the last person to leave the lab? Mm. So maybe those are the four categories that you will need. And then find out what, what equipment should have what sticker. And then you put on the sticker and then people will be reminded while they're sitting at yeah. that equipment. That's because a wonderful idea. I mean, I mean because this, this idea that, oh, if we just mention at a lab meeting, remember to shut things off, then things are going to... I mean, things are not going to change from that, right? We need to be reminded and... And you're also like, what hmm, What am I supposed to do with this one? Okay, I'm just going to leave it on. Uh, Better safe than sorry, right? And I mean, yeah. yeah. That, is, that is the mentality in a lab, for sure. I think a lot of people can relate with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, things don't change easily, right? Not in any, any circumstance. Changes are difficult. And that's, I yes. mean, we have to really embrace that these are people and it's not about, ex- I mean, it's not technology. It's, it's people who have to do these things. And I think um, luckily with social media and like the way we can reach out to each other now, just the way we found each other now, mm-hmm. um, I think people can actually start um, finding more information and it's more re- readily available and yeah. you know, just like realize that they're not the only people that wants to make a change, that there are actually ways yeah. of doing this. I think you'll realize that even in your own sensor institute, there are people who would like to make a change. And I think, I mean, I've done quite a few webinars and workshops where people are like, I'm so happy to see that other people care about this. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of people caring about this, but but a lot of people also feel very alone. 
Um, so also, again, if you want to, what, what can you specifically do in your center or institute? I mean, if you can find like-minded people, like send an email around uh, and also get the management on board if you can, then that's a really good place to start because then you're sort of like more like a community doing something and not a single person in the lab trying to change the world. That's very helpful because I think that's that sounds like something you kind of did naturally. You found like a, a bunch of like-minded people and surrounded yourself with them and mm. kind of like built this green environment um, army. <laughs> so that's like good advice, I think. But that so, actually started with an email. So I, I really like the head of administration of finance, so the director of the institute. So I also felt like he would probably support me. And I, I went to him and I was like, Hey, Peter, I have this idea. I would really like to make this green task force, but I want to make sure that I'm like that I have your support and that I'm not I'm not doing it to criticize how the center is running. I just would like to help help the green sort of transition. And then he was like, I think that sounds amazing. Go for it. You have my blessing. And then I sent an email, you know, and everybody email to the center where I said I had this idea to form this group. And if anybody was interested in joining then I would suggest that we would meet and talk about how we wanted to organize us and what we wanted to do. And that's basically how it started. And then I had, I mean, a lot of people replied and the people who didn't reply that they wanted to join replied, that's so cool, well done. I mean, it's not that it was easy to change things, but generally people thought that's a nice idea. Um, that's, that's great. I mean, I think that would happen in most senses, to be honest, because, I mean, sustainability is really, it's on the agenda in whatever area right i mean you were buying bed linen yeah and they thought about how they're wrapping stuff right i mean we we can't yes. get around it anymore that is um, yeah that is very true i'm i'm actually um motivated to reach out to people because i the way um a colleague sent a, a link to me uh which had the the lab conscious website mm. where i found your blog so that's kind of just someone reached out to me as well yeah uh, so that's just amazing how it starts with a little sign and then it just grows and exactly. it just snowballs. I mean, it's 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 much bigger than you think. And it's not that it's mainstream to want to go green in the lab. I mean, we're not that many mm. yet, but but it's <laughs> it's you're not the only one. And I mean, a lot of people care about this. And that's also actually a good argument. Or when you when you talk to your colleagues about going green and you feel like, okay, probably they'll be a little resistant. How can I sort of try to make this smooth? I mean... Telling, telling them that a lot of people are doing this, that's already, that's a nice thing to throw into a sentence because, <laughs> I mean, the human mind is a funny mind, right? I mean, we like to do what others are doing. FOMO. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, it's a thing, people are going green. Then it's like, okay, then we're more likely to go green also. Um, and then generally, I mean, frame it in a positive way because, you know, a thunderstorm speech about that the planet is burning and we have a moral responsibility and those things that's that's not very appealing to a lot of people it really isn't so do we want apocalypse <laughs> yeah exactly i mean oh who want i i mean that's that's a tough one right but if you for example could phrase it in a way like that we really i mean we really have a golden opportunity of making a real green difference by taking a few yeah. simple actions that don't have to cost us a lot of time or money uh, but it actually is really impactful um, then it's more like it's a positive story it's a positive yeah. journey it's somewhere where you can make a difference yeah it's not pointing fingers it's not doing the blame game it's just you know moving in a positive sustainable exactly. and be better future 
So that's like exactly. you can't really argue with that. <laughs> no. Well, and if I mean, maybe they don't care so much about it, but I don't think they're going to argue against it at least. Um, Initially, some of your teammates might not be so um, uh, present with the whole uh, mm-hmm. setup and contribute as intensely as some of the other teammates. But eventually, I think once you get the grunt work done, they might ease into it much easier and start contributing even more and seeing that it's not so yeah. difficult and it's not so impossible. I mean, if you're able to use data to show that you're going green, for example, I mean, you can have these, um, these what, what are they, like power outlet monitors thing, right? So, for example, you could measure how much energy does our, does our minus 20 freezer use or consume before we declutter it, before we defrost it, and before we check the temperature. And then maybe you can show afterwards that, okay, we actually reduced 15 or 20% or whatever of the energy, right? I mean... That's also something that I think everybody likes it, but especially scientists, right? When we see, okay, That's it actually true. does make a difference what we're doing. Um, that is very true. The scientists love the stats. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole, oh, let's let's make everything a little greener. That's very, it's not very tangible to us, right? Um, and I think also in, in terms of like, what, what should you tell your colleagues or how do you get them on board? I mean, generally try to be very specific. So... I mean, at a lab meeting, instead of saying, I think we should do something about the waste, maybe you can say, I think it would be really nice if we could reduce how much plastic waste we're producing. And I suggest that we change the brand of Piper Tips to do that, Mm -hmm. because I found a brand that uses less plastic. Right? That's very specific. That's something where, you know, it's tangible and they know, okay, this is what she's talking about. This is the decision we have to make. I mean, if you just throw the ball up in the air and say, I think we should do more green stuff, it's like, what does that even mean? Like, what what does that require for me? Yeah, yeah. that's brilliant um, advice. I really, I think um, some people like do that and then they just don't continue the conversation later. So just compartmentalizing baby steps, mm. little things, don't just like go, be, okay. Just be very <laughs> specific because it's, I mean, where we, oh, I'm, I'm not a sign, well, I'm a, previous scientists right i'm not working you in a lab anymore sure but scientist <laughs> <laughs> but we're not it's i mean our job description is not going green it's not reducing the footprint the ecological footprint of laboratory work is to do the science and whenever we see a threat to doing the science then we're not doing it anymore right mm. so i mean i mean if it's too much work if it seems like it's overwhelming to take the green actions then they're not going to be done and that's fair enough and that's exactly why we have to also be aware of maybe picking the actions that fit this lab well. No, so pick the stuff where you feel like your colleagues are most open to change. And if they, in the beginning, maybe they don't want to do anything. And maybe you can say, I it, I would suggest that we check the freezer temperatures of our minus, minus 20 freezers and that we um, sort of keep them organized or whatever. You and I, mm. I don't mind doing the inventory, for example. Maybe you're the one starting something that you check the temperatures, you do the inventories, and then maybe they're like, with time, they will also engage a little more. Maybe they're open to doing other things. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be all or nothing on day one. Maybe you just start with something simple where they're open and where they don't have to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, and that's And then true. maybe with time, sustainability will generally be a priority, right? That would be yeah, that's awesome. Great. Um, could you give the listeners some a summarization of the pro tips for a lab, like just in general, what would you like maybe name five pro tips for keeping or bringing sustainability into a lab? Mm. 
So the footprint of your lab work is typically three to ten times larger than the footprint from at home. And there are many reasons for that. And five ways to try to reduce how large this ecological footprint is, is for example to shut the sash of the fume hood when you leave it, autoclave less, and don't run the autoclave unless it's full, uh, chill up your minus 80 freezers to minus 70, check the freezer temperature of your minus 20 freezers, and if you really want to do something about plastic and plastic waste, then try to reduce how much plastic is entering the lab in the first place, rather than oh, starting sorting it. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, could you tell the listeners about any upcoming online courses or workshops or seminars or any giveaways that's coming up? Uh, how should they go about signing up or taking part? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do them on request, actually. So I have a okay. few upcoming uh, workshops and webinars um, that are sort of, you know, a closed community that booked me to do it, either an institute or a PhD association network thing or, um, yeah, centers, uh, research centers. So I think, I mean, in general, if, um, if there's an interest from a center or a lab or whatever, then I could do a workshop or a webinar. Uh, I don't do them on like on a regular basis where people sign up. Um, okay. But if people are interested in having them, then they can reach out and then we'll see uh, if something's possible. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully they'll they'll hear this episode and they'll reach out to you. Yeah, I was contacted by uh, uh, the University of Western Australia, which is like literally the other side of the planet to where <laughs> I'm sitting. And they were like, we would really like to book you for a workshop. And I was like, how in the world do you even know I exist? But uh, but that's the cool thing with like Instagram and Twitter. And that I mean, amazing. it's really... And the science community, it doesn't know any borders, right? I, and it's the same with the Green Lab community. The borders are not, not existing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm sure the listeners will um, all find this very interesting um, in finding the ways of improving their lab and getting it to be more greener. Thank you so much. Thank you for granting me almost an hour of your time. <laughs> I thought it was hour. so nice to talk to you. Yeah. No, I, I love it that other people are interested in going green in the lab as well. I think that's, it's yeah. always very nice to meet like-minded people. And uh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy you invited me to, uh, to join you today. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. You too. Enjoy yeah, your Thank evening. you so much. You too. Okay. Bye. 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 I am sure everyone listening to this are certainly interested in finding ways to improve their lab environment and to make it more sustainable. Even if you are just starting out with your first attempts to make your lab green, good on you. Keep going. Ava Sustain has a Twitter and an Instagram account at Ava Sustain, as well as a website easily found by typing in avasustain.com in your web browser. I really recommend speaking to her and arranging a consultation in order to work around obstacles that may be specific to your lab, so that your lab will not only work with more efficiency and cost-effectiveness, but also be sustainable and save the environment. Thank you for listening, and feel free to support this podcast by subscribing and sharing the episode if you liked it. Enjoy your day. Goodbye.